0: Turning her eyes, she scanned the mist until she saw the bolt fading from sight in the depths of the crater. All eyes except the thief's were on it. Even when it was invisible to the keenest eye, they stood searching for it in the wisps of steam, each wondering how they would know when the stone reached the fire. The thief knew. He alone turned away from the crater and looked instead from face to face, pausing at last on the queen of Atolia. He knew the moment Hamiathus' gift reached the Hephaestial fire, knew the moment it ceased to exist. He saw its destruction reflected in the face of the queen as her fierce belief in the gift faded away.
1: Man, remember when we believed in Hamiathus' gift? So silly. I don't know what you're talking about. I never did. Neither did I. Not for a second. Can we go home now? It's hot up here. You know what else is hot? What? The queen of Tolia. Girl, are you a volcano? Because you're really hot, and I'm terrified of you. <laughs> I'm Caitlin. And I'm Noelle. And you're watching Disney Channel. Or, no, you're not. You're listening to the Atollian Archives. This week, we're wrapping up our discussion of The Thief by Megan Whalen turner by digging into some of the short stories and commentary surrounding its plot and publication.
0: The quote we opened with is from a short story Megan wrote for the paperback release of Conspiracy of Kings. It's called Destruction, about the destruction of Hamiathus' gift. It takes place in the time between the end of The Thief and the beginning of Queen of Atolia. It's a seven-page scene where Eugenides, Atolia, Sunis, and foreign ambassadors watch Edis shoot the gift into the Sacred Mountains volcano with a crossbow. Which is
1: badass. I want to invite <laughs> all my frenemies over to watch me shoot God's rock into a volcano with a crossbow. That's what the kids call a power move.
0: There's a whole paragraph of Sunis's bitter internal narration. <laughs> about why is edis throwing away the immortality (laughs) that should be his and stay bitter (laughs) atolia and jen spend most of it straight up staring at each other atolia was quote watching him closely then a few pages later edis noted that atolia continued to watch the thief then later instead of watching the once in a lifetime destruction of this mythical object quote Only Atolia had not taken her eyes off the thief, end quote. We get it, Irene.
1: (laughs) And it's mutual. He alone turned away from the crater and looked instead from face to face, pausing at last on the Queen of Atolia. As we all know, there's nothing more romantic than watching belief in a higher power fade from somebody's face at your passive-aggressive volcano party. Also, can we talk about his pants for a second? (laughs) It says... They describe everybody's clothes, and it says that Jen is dressed in a very standard way, which involves pants that bell at the bottom before being tucked into low boots, which is the ugliest thing that I have (laughs) ever heard of.
0: 70 styles in Edis.
1: Right, like, oh my gosh. Picture (laughs) all the dramatic scenes from these books that you can think of, but Jen is wearing bell bottoms the whole time. The Mead Empire wants to take over to give them better clothes. (laughs) Irene is the most beautiful woman in the world because she's the only person who can pull off their terrible, terrible fashion. I think it's cool, like, as funny as it is that Jen and Irene are just, I guess, staring knowingly? Like, making weird eye contact across this volcano? It's actually really cool that Jen is looking around at the people instead of at the gift because... A, he doesn't need to look at it because he has this intrinsic connection to it and he can feel it, and B he knows that it's people's belief in it that's important, Mm -hmm. and it's the people that matter here and the moment when they stop believing in it is really the moment when it's destroyed, and that's the important thing about it being destroyed. It's also stated in there that um,
0: the reason that Edis wants it to be so public and she invited the heads of state of the other countries is so that so that there's no doubt that it was destroyed so that nobody else can claim that they found it or that it survived and they have the right to edis Mm -hmm. she wanted it to be beyond all doubt so no one would also so no one would climb into the volcano (laughs) trying
1: to go get it this is destroying the gift turns out to be a really awkward thing They try and do it in a dignified way, and Jen suggests using a slingshot, (laughs) and eventually they decide on a crossbow, but Helen is still worried that it's going to look vaguely ridiculous, her in this fancy dress shooting this rock into a volcano with a crossbow. And I think that that's very illustrative of Helen as a person and what she's concerned with, because she's always a little bit aware that she might look ridiculous mm-hmm. and she feels a responsibility to be dignified and to have gravitas but she's aware that she may not uh and that she's not going to live up to those expectations and the people around her don't really care but she wants to be the best that she can be mm-hmm but she also or knows story. how to laugh at herself. Right. Like she, she thinks about that image and laughs at it. And that's a difference between her and Atolia. I think Atolia can't afford to laugh at herself because it's dangerous for her to ever look anything less than absolutely dignified and absolutely in control. Mm-hmm. But Edith has some leeway to sometimes look a little silly. Yeah. And she feels kind of guilty about it because she... She wants to be the queen, and she wants to do that for people and give people that image. But it's not life or death for her to do so. Mm
0: -hmm. The next short story we wanted to talk about is called Eddis. And this was released in the paperback version of King of Atolia.
1: But it takes place before the thief, so we're talking about it as an extra in relation to the thief. Mm
0: -hmm. So in this story... Helen is nine years old, and she's the protagonist. And um, it's mentioned in the, st- in the story that Jen is
1: four years old. He's not in the story, but he's mentioned. Helen really shines in this supplementary material. Yeah, It's the only time she's ever the perspective character, I think.
0: I think so, yeah. Which is great. These are all just such gems, yeah. these stories. I love them. So in this story... Helen uh, leaves the palace by herself at age nine to go camping overnight in an old ruin of a temple that she found. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night and someone has stolen all the wood from her campfire. So she goes into the temple. She was sleeping outside of it. And she finds it's been repaired. And the god Eugenides, the goddess Moira and Moira's mother, the wind... Um, Paraphys. Paraphys? Paraphys are all in the temple, and the story is
1: them talking and meeting Helen. They tell her that she will be the last ruler of Mm Edith, and that she will be Edith and not Adea, which is really important, and probably the central issue in Helen's character arc. Mm-hmm. Also, this is
0: the biggest glimpse we ever get of the god Eugenides in Garen. Yeah. And it's really fascinating, actually, because, you know, in the stories that Jen tells, he's uh, a character, but it's definitely not as detailed. um Like, for example, in this short story, it says Sitting on the altar above Mora, so indecently comfortable in such a sacrilegious place, was Eugenides the
1: thief. <laughs> then... Which makes me think of. Um, how is Jen described in King of Atolia? He's sitting on the throne like he's a like he's a, uh, an
0: apprentice in a
1: wine shop. Yeah,
0: yeah. Same image. And then later in this short story, uh Eugene the god lies down on his stomach on the altar, props his head on his elbows,
1: and waves his feet in the air. <laughs> it's a sleepover. <laughs> There are also some really interesting insights about gender in this story. There's a quote where, By the time she reached the age when a boy received his spear, she would have left sword practice and horseplay behind, and undergone the mysterious alteration that would make her a young woman, with long skirts and jewels in her ears, and no interest in anything sensible. For the time being, there was freedom, exercised with discretion. And so Helen feels very limited by these gender roles and that's related to the great burden that she feels about being her country's sole ruler in this um transitional time let's say (laughs) (laughs) and she feels like in order to perform this office effectively she needs to step into the male role in a sense and Mm -hmm. I think that Helen has internalized a lot of ideas about uh femininity being synonymous with superficiality Mm -hmm. and that's a complicated thing Mm. especially since we see
0: atolia really is very feminine in those typical ways but she's one of the strongest women in the one of the strongest people in the series
1: yeah And I am really glad that we get to see both of them Mm -hmm. because they're both expressing their own gender in the way that they want to express it. And I think the larger society puts all those value judgments on that that make it fraught. But at the end of the day, each of these women is her own person and has a relationship with Gender that is complicated but genuine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, Helen's a lesbian. <laughs> like, okay, I know I like Helen Sofos. I truth. like it. I like it. It's great. But come on, I uh, come on. I hold that close to my heart. <laughs> yes. Everyone in the series is at at the least bisexual. Yeah, it's a fact. This is the not this. Uh, the disaster by series. The uh Irene is a distinguished by and Jen is a disaster by and they're in love. And that's the story. <laughs> and we're sticking to it. We are. <laughs> what politics?
0: We also want to talk about there's a very interesting afterword that Megan wrote. If I'm not mistaken, it was released for the paperback version of The Thief. It's called The Real World Behind Jen's World. And she goes into um, what were some of her inspirations for things behind the series. What cultures did she draw from? And she also talks more about, um, I guess, the timeline for the series how it's not supposed to be set in like ancient times because they have pocket watches and printed books and windows, windows with, glass with glass and glass.
1: cannons. Yeah. It's interesting how when you set a fantasy story in a fantasy place, that is similar to a real place or corresponds to a real place, people are going to bring all sorts of assumptions about what that place looks like. And it's to the point where people sometimes talk about these stories as if they do take place in ancient Greece, even when there are cannons going off. Mm-hmm. Our assumptions are very hard to break.
0: So, um, she says in this afterward that, um, if the series has some sort of uh, date in our world, it might be sometime after the 1500s.
1: She says it's more uh, Byzantine mm-hmm. than ancient Greece.
0: Also, very fascinating two sentences in this afterward. Yeah, this blew our <laughs> minds. Get ready. She says that uh, she put a direct quote from Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones into this book.
1: Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Please, Let's please find it for us.
0: Go through it with a fine tooth comb. Because we, how many
1: times have we read this?
0: Like, easily 20 between us. I don't know.
1: And how many times have we read Howl's Moving Castle between us? Easily 20. I don't know. I do. (laughs) Yeah, so if you ever find that, uh, please tell us because we are dying. (laughs) (laughs) The last short story, little extra that we want to talk about is a story that's called Thief. And it first appeared in the children's magazine Highlights, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. In, like, the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, way back. And it's available online and is illustrated with really lovely illustrations.
0: It's on her website. So, in this short story, uh, it opens with Jen sprinting through the palace. He's 10 years old and he's being chased by a crowd of his cousins because he stole his cousin Brea's gold earrings. And... He jumps a 10-foot light well and does not fall two stories to the ground, but he makes it to the other side. Um, his brother, Stenidas is waiting on the other side, so he feels like he's touched base, he's safe now, and he sticks his tongue out as, at his cousin's, and then you find out that the reason he stole those earrings is he says that she said, that if father hadn't married so far beneath him he could have made himself king because the narration explains the king of Edis was ill and his sons had just died leaving mm-hmm. only daughters to inherit so the king of Edis's brothers could make a bid to seize the throne so Brea was insinuating that the minister of war Jan's father could have seized the throne mm-hmm. which is a huge insult it says the type of insult that Started family feuds that could last for years. So now the tables have turned. Jen is in the right.
1: (laughs) And so we see the seed of Jen's really fierce loyalty to people. Mm -hmm. And we see his fierce loyalty to his father. Yeah. He wants to defend his father. Even if it's not in the way that his father would (laughs) probably prefer to be defended. We also see... A brother of Jen's who has been mentioned before Stenitis and he is Jen's brother who is a watchmaker and in this story he's described as one of Jen's favorite people certainly his favorite sibling like Jen Stenitis didn't fit well into his martial world he had a gift for the mechanical and the mathematical it was Stenitis who had taught his younger brother to read and was most often to be found absorbed in his unwarlike hobby of watchmaking In spite of being different, Stenides was well-liked." And so we see this masculinity again Mm -hmm. and this idea of compulsory violence and what happens when you refuse to participate in that. And Stenides provides Jen with a role model for somebody who does make different choices and manages to be successful and to be happy.
0: So I think the the course of the entire series and Jen's whole life would have been very different if Tenatis had not been.
1: And we talked like before this. when he'd been mentioned about whether or not it would have been normal for a nobleman to have that kind of career. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is he a watchmaker? And this story suggests that it is in fact pretty abnormal, and it's considered to be a bit of an eccentric hobby that he has.
0: But not necessarily for reasons of class, but because it's
1: unwarlike. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's telling that it's referred to in the narration here as a hobby, and later Jen describes him as a watchmaker. Mm -hmm. Jen is very respectful of his passion for this, Mm -hmm. and the fact that he wants to dedicate his life to it.
0: And then, iconically, the last sentence in this story is, Someday, Jen promised himself he was going to be the next Thief of
1: Edis. Jen always accomplishes his goals for better or for worse. So, what are our concluding thoughts on the Thief? Its overall structure, what it's saying? One of my biggest,
0: biggest shock moments in this Rereading at the very end is we realize that Jen gives the gift to Helen on day 18 of this book. Mm-hmm. Not even an entire three weeks have passed. And then the story takes maybe another two weeks to end. It's not very clear because Jen is sick and takes a while to recover. But wow, that goes
1: quickly. Yeah. And The Thief is one of three books in the series that are framed as an in-universe first-person narrative. Mm -hmm. We've got The Thief, we have A Conspiracy of Kings, which is only partially so, and Thick's Thieves. And it's the only one that's fully from Jen's perspective. And it's a story that he's writing down uh, for public record and for Helen. And so how much can we trust anything from this story to be the truth? Because we see again and again and again that he is an
0: unreliable narrator.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Although part of that is definitely the fact that anyone who would be reading this story in-universe already knows many of the the plot points that turn out to be a surprise or a twist for us, for other readers. But anyone in Jen's world reading this narrative would already know that he was the Thief
1: of Edis yeah. on a covert mission. And so the, the Watsonian <laughs> explanation, as they say... Uh, for why he doesn't tell you those things until the end, is that he assumes that his reader already knows them. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna continue to be a factor in the way that these stories unfold, is when we have these narratives where it's a character in the story talking to another character in the story and that's how you're getting all the information Mm -hmm. what is assumed between those two characters that you the reader may not know right and how does that affect your experience right
0: and in what way is the storyteller trying to present himself to the other person like what like in what way does he want himself to to look
1: which that's gonna be what
0: effect is he trying to have
1: big question in thick as thieves yes
0: also, it's interesting that um, out of the three books we have that are narratives, um, two of those narratives are written and told to Helen. Yeah. Or for Helen.
1: Helen is often put in the role of witnessing, both by other characters and by the gods or by the overall events of the story. I think that she she carries the burden of having to witness everything that's happening to the country of Edis.
0: And to Jen, also.
1: Yeah. And uh, she has to carry that. We have a comment this week from a user called A Garden and Library on Tumblr, Kara or Kara. I apologize for whichever one was wrong. And she says a possible theory to explain why Jen isn't close at all to most of his siblings is that Jen was a really late, unexpected baby. So all his siblings could be 10 to 15 years older than him or more, which means they wouldn't have much in common. Jen probably got to be really independent and do whatever he wanted because his parents were like, oh, uh, what do we do with this? I know some people who are really close with their much older siblings, but that's definitely not always the case. And if his siblings were married and starting their own families by the time he was born, I can imagine it making them pretty distant, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. He's definitely the odd boy out. And as we've already said, definitely the youngest child. So thank you for that theory. Uh... I think that that's a really interesting one, and I'll probably think about it more when the siblings come up again at the at the rare moment when they come up again. They
0: better, they better. March nineteenth, two thousand nineteen. Also, we want to give a shout out to an incredible Inktober project revolving around *The Thief*. Carolyn Dirks-Heidi made it uh, her mission in October to make prints of key scenes from the entirety of *The Thief* from the whole book. Um, And her work is just phenomenal. They're all beautiful. Yeah. Some of my favorite, favorite Queen's Thief art ever. Um, You should definitely all go check those out. Her Tumblr is Storyline Caroline, and her Instagram is Caroline Illustration. Um, And the whole project is on her Instagram. You can see um, behind-the-scenes photos of the prints being set up and um her rolling the prints it's so cool and then you can also see obviously all of the finished oh the finished products are just incredible i love
1: them so much thus ends this episode and with it our discussion of book one thank you so much to all of you who have jumped
0: onto this train with us we hope you'll stick around as we dive into book two in our next episode shit's gonna get real what are your final thoughts on the thief Drop us a line at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed blessed in in your your endeavors. endeavors.